All right, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary, and in this session, we are going to be looking at Luke 22, 39 through 53. It's still the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and now it's getting dark. It's getting late into the evening. The meal, what we call the Last Supper, is complete. Jesus has offered them a new way to understand the Passover feast. It now will commemorate the new Exodus, the new and greater redemption, the one that will be accomplished through him by offering his body and his blood, and it'll inaugurate a new covenant. Jesus, in that context, has also warned his disciples that the situation that they're in is about to change. A few days earlier, there was singing and waving of palm branches and heralding of his Messiah. Well, that's about to change, and difficulty and conflict is now right on the horizon. And then with that, Jesus does something surprising. He leaves the upper room, and he goes with his disciples to where he always goes. Look at verse 39. He came out and went, as was his habit, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Luke highlights that this was his habit. And that's important because this is surprising. Why? Why is it surprising? Well, because he knew what Judas was up to. He knew where Judas was at at this moment, he knew that Judas knew that going to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane, was his habit, and Jesus could have gone anywhere else and hid. He could have that night gone somewhere else, but he didn't, because he knows what the necessary path is, even if he faces it with difficulty and anguish. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives as he always did, and Judas knows exactly where that place is. Let's keep reading verse 40. Now, when he arrived, when Jesus arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you do not come into temptation. The them is the disciples. Matthew and Mark's account specifies the three members of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Matthew and Mark also mention the specific location on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke omits that. He he likely omits it because he's writing for a non-Jew, and so he typically leaves out Jewish uh, place names, Jewish specific Jewish terms that wouldn't be familiar to a non-Jew. And so that's probably why he leaves it out here. We know where it is because of Matthew and Mark's account, but here it's just the Mount of Olives, and they're told to pray that you do not come into temptation. And notice that that's similar to really the Lord's Prayer. The idea isn't that you do not experience temptation or testing, but that you don't cave into it. That's the point of the same line in the Lord's Prayer, right? We pray that we do not enter into temptation means not that we won't experience it, but that we won't give into it. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, pray that way, pray that way. And Jesus himself is going to go and do this very thing. He's going to go pray that he will be ready to meet the hour of testing. And so verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So he he uh, went away from his disciples a short distance. He knelt down. Notice the seriousness of his praying, his posture here. He's kneeling before his father and was praying, saying, Father, If you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
And so his prayer is to his Father in heaven, if you are willing, if you would permit it, if you would allow it, that's the idea. If you will this, if you would let it be so, remove this cup. And the cup is the cup of suffering. The cup that he's about to endure uh, of dying on the cross. He's saying, is there any other way? If you will it, if you permit it, would you just not make me have to go through this? And so at one level, Jesus doesn't really want to undergo what he's about to face on the cross. Could you remove this? And yet, he says... Yet not my will, but yours be done. And that word yet not is really nevertheless. However, that's the, the force of that word, literally. Uh, whatever Jesus' preference might be for himself, God's will is the only will that really matters to him. And so I would prefer not to have to do this. However, your will is what I really deeply, truly want. And so not my will, but yours be done. This is the same heart that the disciples themselves will need if they're going to pass the test and not cave into temptation too. They've got to love God's will and want God's will more than their own. Um, Jesus, in his praying then, has this happen to him. Verse 43 and 44. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. This is the one passage that mentions Jesus' sweat like blood. But notice it's in brackets. Uh, and the reason for that is because some manuscripts don't include it, and some manuscripts do. The science that attempts to wrestle with this phenomenon is called textual criticism. And the goal of textual criticism is to try to understand, was this in the original manuscript or not? And they have a whole method that guides their work, a whole series of principles and strategies and skill sets that guide their work to try to determine what most likely was the original text. Because, see, we don't have the original manuscripts, but by and large, we do have the original text. Well, sometimes, even though they have a whole method, even though they spend hours and hours and years and years looking at all the different manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, sometimes the data is just not super clear. And that's the case here. The evidence is just kind of split. Personally, I think it would be very hard to explain where these verses came from if they weren't in the original. And so I tend to think they were part of the original text of Luke's gospel. And the way these verses function in the story is they, they show God the Father responding to Jesus' prayer, not by removing the cup, but by sending an angel to strengthen Jesus in response to his prayer. The prospect of what lies ahead fills Jesus with anguish. In these verses, he's said to be in great agony. In Matthew and Mark, they, they use the word distressed and troubled. Like Jesus is facing what's about to come with a certain measure of like a depth of agony, stress, being uh, troubled in spirit, like so deeply. And Luke says he was in such agony uh, that he was sweating and blood mixed with his sweat, which is a possible phenomenon where the strain and the stress, some of the capillaries in the scalp and the, and the forehead begin to, to burst. And so now you're bleeding and sweating all at the same time. And so perhaps that's what's going on. Or perhaps 
the way it's worded here, it could also be taken as Jesus was sweating so much that it was just pouring off of him and out of him like blood did. Either way, the point is to speak of deep anguish and stress. But through prayer and the help of an angel, Jesus's will is steeled and he's ready to submit to and follow the will of God in this moment. And so verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. They can, they, they can sense what's going on. There's been this dark cloud over this meal, right? Even in the midst of all the joy of the week, right? Like there's this, this heaviness in the air. They feel it. And so he came and he found his disciples sleeping from sorrow. And he roused them and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you do not enter into temptation. So here are the disciples. Jesus charged them at the beginning of this scene to pray that they wouldn't give in to testing and temptation, but instead of praying, they're sleeping. And that really restates the opening of this short little scene here. And it's the lesson I think Luke wants us to hear and to heed. The way to face and to prepare and to deal with testing and temptation is through prayer. And in this moment, Jesus has been praying, praying so fervently that he, he's pouring out sweat mixed with blood and they're sleeping and they are unprepared. And so here in this moment now, Jesus is steeled for what's to come and the disciples are sleeping rather than preparing. And in that very moment, Judas and the crowd arrives. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was leading the way for them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Notice what Luke does. Luke highlights that Judas is one of the twelve. It seems that he's trying to highlight how close he was to Jesus, and even being that close, yet he betrayed him. And he did so with the traditional sign uh, of respect and affection, a kiss of greeting. And he, it, it's like, Judas, what are you doing, right? Like, and when those who were around Jesus saw what was going to happen, verse 49, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right? Like Jesus had told them earlier this whole confusing bit about selling and buying swords. They noted they had to. Is this the moment you're talking about, Jesus? Should we strike with the sword? They don't even wait for his answer. At least one didn't wait for his answer. One just grabbed a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And so... Uh, there they are around the table. Jesus says, you know, sell your cloak, buy a sword. They have two with him. And without waiting for Jesus' reply, one of them swings a sword and cuts off a man's ear. And not just any man, the very servant of the high priest. Jesus' response in the next verse indicates they've totally misunderstood what Jesus meant just a couple hours earlier when they're sitting around the table. Look at verse 51. But Jesus responded and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. They've come out in the dark of night to arrest him. And Jesus, still considering others more important than himself, heals this man. Heals his ear. 
And he's the one being arrested, and he seems in this moment to take charge of the situation, to get his disciples under control, and literally to hand himself over to those who are coming to arrest him. He stops his disciples from using the sword. Um, In fact, in Matthew's version of this moment, Jesus says, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So whatever Jesus meant about selling your cloak and buying your swords when they were sitting around the table, he, he didn't intend for his disciples then or since to live and die by the sword. That's just not Jesus' way. The sword was the way all the other so-called messiahs and revolutionaries operated. That was how they were going to restore the kingdom to Israel and bring God's kingdom. But that's not Jesus' way. Look then what Jesus says to the crowd that's come out to arrest him. Verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus asserts, look, I'm not someone leading a revolt. I'm stopping my disciples from using their two little swords. That's not my way. Jesus isn't calling his followers to fight with swords. He's not going to go out in a blaze of glory like so often we want our heroes to do. Uh, And notice who he's speaking to, the chief priests the officers of the temple, and the elders. In other words, the Jewish elite. And he says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Like the Jewish elite are aligned with the power of darkness. They've come out during the literal dark of night because they are people of darkness. And they are carrying out the actions of the dark powers And yet we know from Jesus' prayer, it's also God's will. that God will use their wickedness and their darkness and the dark powers they've aligned themselves with. God will use that to achieve his purposes. And so with that, Jesus hands himself over to them. And so let me just offer a couple reflections from this story. The first is just that idea of Jesus handing himself over to them. Like Jesus didn't go and hide. He went as was his habit to the place Judas would know to find him. He submitted to the father's will and he hands himself over to them. Uh, One, he's completely in charge of his actions and his choice. And Jesus knows this is what's necessary for the redemption of the world. Uh, Two, he doesn't go out in a blaze of glory and he doesn't fight, as I noted, like so often our heroes in our movies do. He lays down his life for them. This is the pattern and the pathway of redemption. This is the Messiah's way, the way of self-giving love. The second reflection out of this section that really strikes me is Jesus' praying. Jesus, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, is noted to be a man of prayer. And so all throughout the Gospel of Luke, and then culminating in his praying here, his praying has prepared him for this moment, for this moment to submit to the Father's will, for this moment to hand himself over to these people who are aligned with the powers of darkness, right? He began his ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer, and that enabled him to begin his ministry in faithful obedience to the Father. 
And it ends here in agonizing prayer in this climactic moment, which enabled him to handle the situation according to God's will. Praying is how Jesus faithfully faced temptation and testing. And praying was supposed to be how his disciples face it too. And they were sleeping instead of praying. And how often that's the case with us. May we be people who pray rather than, you know, sleep in those moments of crisis. May we be people who pray all throughout our life like Jesus did so that we can face testing and temptation with the same courage and the same obedience to the Father that Jesus himself faced it in this moment. Hey, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to each and every one of you who support the listener's commentary by your generosity. Your donations are what makes this ministry possible. And as a result, the listener's commentary is being downloaded all over the world in some places where it's very, very hard to be a Christian. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you've been blessed by this ministry in some way, you want to see this commentary continue to grow and expand and reach more and more people in hard to reach places, then I'd encourage you just to swing over to listener's commentary dot com slash give and sign up for a recurring monthly donation. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission and are tax deductible. And it's your generosity that makes it possible to give these resources away completely for free so that people who don't have access to any other kind of Bible teaching or education can access these resources to study and learn the Bible and grow in their faith. So thanks a ton for your support. God bless you guys.